Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Last episode, I touched briefly on the fact that I had experimented with a very finely controlled soldering iron to do a bit of bluing. and wasn't particularly happy with the, the results that I got, so I didn't pursue that much further. Uh, but a couple of days later, you sent me a link to an Instagram post by Nicholas Hacko, an Australian watchmaker who has outfitted a soldering iron with a custom jig that he uses for bluing screws. So how did you come across this? Yeah, I follow Nicholas on Instagram. Uh, I came across him through John Saunders' uh, NYCCNC YouTube channel. He was in Australia and ended up doing a shop visit while he was there with Nicholas. And uh, so I, I sort of came across him that way. And uh, he and his family, they're in the process of trying to make the first Australian built watches. This was one of the videos he posted on Instagram showing how he blues the screws for their movements. And I thought this was interesting. I don't think it is nearly as precise as and controllable as the methods that we were talking about which use a kiln uh, but it certainly is an interesting way of sort of quickly producing a bluing that is reasonably accurate and uh, probably good enough for what a lot of people are doing in sort of a mass-produced watch yeah i can see from this quick clip that it still suffers from some of the consistency issues that I found using a soldering iron mm -hmm. and that the the cue of blue that you're getting across the head of the screw there isn't absolutely consistent. There's a bit of a fade to it. But for all intents and purposes, it gets the job done and you end up with a, a blued screw at the end of the day. And I'm sure with some more refinements, you could probably dial in the consistency even better. So this has inspired me to maybe bust out my mill in the next couple of weeks and, and whip a little jig up like this for my own soldering iron and, and see if I can perhaps improve on my previous attempts. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's certainly worthwhile experimenting a little bit to see if it, uh, it will work. Um, the other person that I saw on Instagram who has a, uh, a similar setup is uh, a gentleman in South Korea. His Instagram uh, feed is three hands underscore studio. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know uh, what his name is. Uh, he usually posts in Korean. And uh, so I, I don't, I unfortunately don't read Korean. So I have no idea what it is that he's, uh, he's saying. But he, in response to Nicholas's post, he posted the one that he made himself. Again, he's created a uh, a plate similar to what Nicholas had. Although the one thing that he's done, which I like, is that on the back side of it, he can rotate the thing around. And on the back side of it, he has a more traditional tray where he can put brass filings into it and heat, you know, heat it up in um, in the sort of a tray of brass filings and use it for slightly larger parts if he's uh, trying to uh, temper a larger piece, like let's say a pinion, then he can do that on the backside. So that was a nice little touch as well, a, a slightly different take on it than what uh, Nicholas had done. Yeah, this is a significantly more substantial jig. So once you do get it up to temperature, provided you can get a an even distribution from the soldering iron, it should yield 
better results. Whether you're using an open flame from something like a butane torch or an alcohol lamp or uh, whatever it happens to be, I, I think having a large amount of mass there will certainly help with the consistency. You're going to find the temperature drops less as you put the cold screw onto it, and it's going to heat more evenly uh, regardless of how it is that you're you're heating it. Uh, so this this design from Three Hand Studio would certainly be a, a, an improvement over what Nicholas did. Yeah, so these both look like they have the soldering irons cranked way up in order to be able to hit the blues. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to try this at a lower temperature as opposed to cranking the temperature on the iron. Mm. Anyway, further experimentation to be done. Now, the whole reason we wound up down the rabbit hole of blooming last episode was because of Krivia's adept skill at blooming. And I was reminded of a video I'd seen some time ago. It was a promotional video that they had done. And according to what's portrayed in this promotional video, Recep hand blues components. And he actually uses a small pan that's very similar in design to one of the ones that the ClickSpring channel published the technical drawings for, if you wanted to, to make your own. And he uses that over a, a classical watchmaker's alcohol lamp. So uh, my hat's off to Regip if he is indeed hand-blowing every one of these components and getting them to come out as consistent and clean as he has. It's truly remarkable. And uh, just one more reason why his pieces fetch the handsome sum that they do. Yeah, I'd be interested to find out how much of this is is just marketing. Obviously, he knows how to hand blue and he can hand blue effectively. Uh, that's that's certainly not, um, not in, in question. But I'm curious as to how much of the production work he does like this and how much of it is... Uh, is just being shot like this for the video. In another bit of follow-up from last episode, uh, we talked about Frodsham's new watch that they made. Uh, they've been working on for the better part of a decade now, and we uh, we were talking a little bit about that movement as well as the dial. And when I was speaking about the dial, I said that it was an enamel dial, and of course it is not an enamel dial, it's a ceramic dial. And we even spoke about that on a previous episode, so... I don't know what I was thinking when I started talking about that as a uh, as an enamel dial, but it is in fact a ceramic dial. Thanks to Matt, the watch nerd, for pointing that out to me on Twitter this morning. I don't know what I was thinking when I was saying that because it is uh, it is certainly a, an impressive feat of engineering the uh, this ceramic dial that they've worked on, and uh, we had even spent uh, spent a fair bit of time talking about that. So it it is not an enamel dial that's on there. Yeah, it was way back in episode 14. One of the articles you sent me this week was a story by SJX on watches by SJX. And it's about a chronometer uh, by Bernhard Zwins. I think that's how you pronounce that. This looks like an interesting watch. Do you want to tell me a little bit about this uh, this chronometer that he's made? So Bernard Zvins was an apprentice to Philippe Dufour, and he's gone on to work for other brands that are very well known for their finishing. And he has been spending so much time finishing a timepiece that he has been working towards releasing uh, that he has actually gone off and 
and made a, a slightly easier to finish piece in the meantime, because while he's still working on this this other series, it's coming up on 10 years now that, that he's been working on this other piece, but he has announced what he's calling the Founders Series, and it's based on the work of an Austrian watchmaker, Joseph Thaddeus Winner, and he's dubbing this the Winner Chronometer. And what's interesting about this particular watch is the balance wheel, which he has transposed fairly directly from a marine chronometer that Joseph Winner had created hundreds of years ago. And it, this balance wheel in this chronometer is bull-shaped, and it is free-sprung, which is the best way to go as far as regulating a balance wheel is concerned. Uh, but the reason that this is interesting, and that it's bull-shaped, is that it makes it easier to adjust the inertia nuts, and that's what allows you to adjust the timing on a free-sprung balance wheel. This balance wheel is interesting. I had never seen the original before. And it's a, certainly a remarkable shape, and it's it's not the kind of balance wheel that you're used to seeing in any kind of watch. Uh, this this angled um, wheel that's uh, sort of forming part of a cone was uh, is certainly a different design. I do like the look of it, though. I think it's uh, quite remarkable, and it's it's uh, a good look inside of the watch itself. Uh, the the movement is a little bit um, plain from the back because it has a three-quarter plate on the back, which, similar to the Kodoke watch we mentioned last episode, uh, working on this would probably be a bit of a challenge just because of trying to line everything up on this large plate while you're assembling it. Um, but it's it's a, a fairly striking movement from behind, just a, a little bit different than what you're used to seeing. Yeah, not a particularly fun piece to have to assemble or to service. But in terms of manufacturing and getting it done and out there, similar to Kudoke's piece, this is going to be a lot quicker to manufacture and to finish. Mm. You've only got essentially that single chamfer all around that big three-quarter plate. Mind you, he did make somewhat of a challenging balance bridge with the nice interior angles, and that's all going to take a fair bit of time to to finish well. But given the amount of practice that Zvins has executing at this level. I mean, this, this is almost a walk in the park for him. Yeah, that balance bridge is uh, is a beautiful shape, and I, I, it's certainly not the kind of thing that a beginner would want to try and finish because that is uh, it has some challenging angles in there. But uh, as you say, he's had a lot of experience doing uh, high-end finishing, so I expect that it's not going to be very challenging for him. Mm -hmm. Which is a big part of what's going to to allow him to release these watches to the public much quicker than this other piece that he has been working on for years. Mm -hmm. Now, the other remarkable thing about this are the enamel dials. And yes, this time these are actually enamel dials. Um, I don't know who's making them. I don't think he is, uh, but the dials look really nice. Um, the blue in particular is an interesting look. He has a, uh, sort of a grayish blue dial with black text on it, which is uh, which is quite nice. It, it's not high contrast, but I, I do like the look of it. I think, it's, uh, I think it looks quite good. And I also like that he has the second sub-dial at 12 o'clock as opposed to 6 o'clock. 
think it's nice to see that change up and uh, something a little bit different in his in his layout. Mm-hmm. Another interesting point about the enamel dials that he's made is that they are the the numerals and the text that you see on the dial are all metal from underneath uh, the enamel, and the enamel is painted over everything, and then the dials are flat lapped until the metal on all the indices shows back through. So it's a really intriguing approach to the way that that dial is being produced. Yeah, this is a pretty standard Champlevé technique that's being used here. And uh, it, it is being used at a very, very high level. The, um, the, the fine detail that he's getting out of this is, uh, is quite remarkable. So they're, um, I, I'd love to see one of these dials in person to see what's, what's going on. And I would, I would even, uh, I'd be even more interested in actually seeing somebody making one or seeing how they manufacture these because the detail that they're getting in the metal, which is then being exposed after the the firing of the enamel is is quite remarkable. So yeah, these are these are beautiful dials. I, I don't know if he's making them or if somebody else is. I suspect somebody with um high specialty skills is making these. Uh that's not a a beginner's enamel dial by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but they look remarkable. Uh, I'd love to love to see more about the details of how those dials are being made. Yes, the interior angles on these indices for the numerals are actually more impressive to me than the interior angles on that balance bridge. It's truly incredible enamel work being done here. This episode of Off Hours is brought to you by the Santa Fe Symposium. The Santa Fe Symposium is held annually in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's the premier collaborative forum for jewelers and professionals in jewelry-related fields. Bench jewelers, manufacturers, lapidarists, metallurgists, casters, educators, and many more take part in this multifaceted event. The symposium was founded as a non-commercial, not-for-profit gathering for professionals willing to freely share their research, challenges, solutions, and innovations. By attending, you will come away with practical know-how you can put to use in your own work. Each year, 24 papers are presented across an exemplary range of jewelry-making endeavors. Attendees receive a copy of the proceedings book, as well as a USB drive with the presentations. Attendees form new relationships, strengthen existing bonds, and build their professional networks with colleagues from around the world. The Santa Fe Symposium offers incredible benefits that last throughout the year and into the future. And the benefits continue to grow each year you attend. Longtime listeners of the show will be familiar with some of the fascinating places I've visited over the past year, including tours of the Goldsmiths Company, Cookson's Gold, and Birmingham City University. Those visits are all thanks to relationships I've built from attending the Santa Fe Symposium. The Santa Fe Symposium is one of the few must-attend events of the year for me, and I hope you join me in Albuquerque this May. The 2019 Santa Fe Symposium will be held May 19th to the 22nd. Visit santafesymposium.org today for more information on the lineup of speakers and how to attend. Later in this episode, we continue discussing the prototype of my first watch, and one of the key technologies I am using to build that watch is 3D printing. 3D printing is a regular topic of papers at the Santa Fe Symposium, and last year there was an excellent paper by Eric Marvitz, called Resin Casting, a Collection of Hypotheses. In it, he discusses the challenges of casting with the 3D resins designed for jewelers, and specifically the challenges of burning them out. He completes a number of experiments to determine better ways to burn out the resins, 
and challenges some of the assumptions the industry has been working with for many years. This paper is a perfect example of the kind of knowledge I can use immediately in my work. You can find Eric Marvette's paper, along with hundreds of others, at santafesymposium.org. So that's the latest update from Bernard Zvins. How are things coming along with your watch project, Chris? I've had a few setbacks lately in terms of the second series of the watch or the the second version of the watch that I've been making, mostly because I've been focused on trying to get the shop in a position where I can actually work comfortably. But then on top of that, I've been having a few issues with actually prototyping as well. We'll talk about the the printing issues that uh, that I've been having in a minute, but the casting that I've been doing recently, I had some issues casting my most recent set of lugs. Now the lugs, I'm uh, for those of you who maybe don't remember, I have been 3D printing those uh, with a resin that is designed for doing burnouts. So it's a, a resin with a high wax, higher wax content than the standard 3D printing resin that you see, and then it can be put into a normal flask, a normal investment flask, and then burned out uh, just like a uh, just like normal wax. Although it isn't really like normal wax. It it has a, a very different structure in terms of how it burns and, and whatnot. And so I was casting, I guess uh, last weekend, I cast some new lugs for myself to work on and uh, use in this case. And I ran into a bunch of issues and some of it was my own fault. And uh, some of it was some challenges that I had with the investment plaster that I was using. Uh, So unfortunately, when you're using these resins, the investment plaster that you that you use has to be sort of designed for using these um, these resins uh, because they tend to expand a little bit more. So the resin needs to be a little bit stronger. And I think that I grabbed the remains of. uh, of my old investment plaster when I was making up the flasks. And so I, uh, I, the, the investment plaster didn't quite hold up during the burnout and therefore it crumbled a little bit, which meant that the surface finish on the parts was miserable and it would have just been too much work to try and clean them up with a file. And by the time I would have gotten down to a surface that was clean and consistent, I would have changed the dimensions of the lugs enough that they weren't really usable. Uh, so I need to um, I need to go back and, and do that again. I was hoping to try and have some uh, have the second watch case done by the time I left for my trip, which is coming up on Wednesday. It is currently Sunday night, and uh, that's just not going to happen. I, I won't have time to to uh, print and cast again between now and then, and then also make the case on top of it. So. I'm not going to worry about it until after I get back at the end of May, and then I'll be able to sort of go at it again. Now, has temperature been an issue at all here? Except we're in the throes of our what fourth winter this year. <laughs> yeah, we're we're into we're into I think month eighteen of this winter. It's uh, it seems to be going on forever. One of the nice things with casting is that the temperatures that you're controlling are not really affected a lot by your environment like you do get a little bit of that when it comes to the water temperature when you're mixing up the investment plaster if the water's too cold then the investment tends to set a little bit quicker than when it's warmer uh, so it, it does certainly help to have um, you know to have your water at a good at a good temperature 
when you're casting or when you're making up the investment plaster. But then inside of the casting process, the rest of it is is well controlled. So you're controlling the temperature inside of the kiln quite quite heavily and obviously inside of the casting machine when you're when you're melting the, the metals uh, i have an incredible amount of control at that point uh, so it's a yeah the there the challenges at this point um, in terms of temperature come primarily through the issues of the temperatures at which the resins burn out and and that's where i i tend to run into problems at this point now how about for the resins themselves when you're you're printing is there any effect there in terms of humidity or or temperature Oh yeah, there, there. I've been having a whole bunch of problems. So the the printer that I'm using is a DLP printer, and so it's using a light sensitive resin. Uh, it's using a 405 nanometer uh, UV cured uh, resin, and in the case of my printer, I'm using uh, it's using a LCD monitor, which has had the UV filter removed from it. So it's it's just putting out a, a UV light source instead of uh, sort of the normal color spectrum that you're used to seeing when you look at a, an LCD monitor. And the image basically for each layer is flashed onto the screen in UV light. And from there, it then cures that particular layer of resin. And most of these resins tend to work best at anywhere between 25 and 35 degrees Celsius, depending on the resin. Uh, with the resins that I use for casting, they tend to be on the, the warmer side. So they certainly prefer being in more towards the 30 to 35 degree range. And unfortunately, the um, the room that I'm... Ca- um, unfortunately, the room that I have my printer set up in, it is not nearly that warm at this time of year. It is uh, the furthest room away from sort of my heat source in the house. Um, and so that leads to issues when it comes to printing. Uh, so I need to figure out a, a solution to help keep my, my resin tank a little bit warmer than it is um, in the winter months when I'm trying to print. So what are some of the possible solutions you've been looking at for solving your resin woes? Yeah, there's a few different options out there that I've found. Uh, obviously, just heating the room up is one way of doing it. Although I'm not sure that I really want to heat, you know, keep an entire room heated to 30 to 35 degrees in the winter uh, just for my printer. That seems a little bit excessive and certainly warmer than I would ever keep the room normally. Uh, Even in the summertime, it's not particularly comfortable if it's 30 to 35 degrees. So uh, what a lot of people are doing is using a small heater inside of the build chamber to heat the to sort of keep the, the build chamber heated. There's a new printer that I've been looking at from Piopoli, uh called the Moai. And it's, it isn't really that new of a printer. They've had a version of this out for a little over a year now. Uh, but they do have a couple of new models of it coming out soon. Uh, this is an SLA-based printer. So it's a, a similar technology to what I'm using, where it's using a, a 405 nanometer UV-cured resin. Uh, the difference is that instead of using an LCD screen to cure the resin, it's using a laser to do it. And so this laser goes and basically traces across the, the bottom of the build tank and draws out each layer. And this is a slightly slower technology than using an LCD screen because an LCD screen can 
flash the entire image all at once, whereas the laser has to actually pass across the surface, covering all of the places that it needs to. So uh, the, the SLA printers have some advantages and disadvantages. They also tend to be a little bit more accurate because they, uh, they get a little bit less light bleed and uh, the point of that laser is, is quite fine. So there, there certainly are some advantages to it. But one of the things I do like about this Moai printer is it has a small heater in the build chamber. And so it, it actually monitors the temperature of the build chamber and keeps it at a reasonable temperature for the entire print. Uh, so that is certainly an option for me. I think they also sell the little heater module separately. Uh, so I may actually look at retrofitting one of those little heater modules into my existing printer and see if I can uh, get that working a little bit better than than what I'm uh, I'm currently experiencing right now. It looks like the build chamber on the Moai itself is better suited to holding the heat than your printer would be. Their case build is certainly better designed for maintaining a comfortable temperature in there. Uh, mine is a plastic chamber uh, with a, a large door on the front of it. Uh, theirs is uh, sort of an aluminum-bodied housing, and uh, it is certainly better designed for doing that kind of thing and, and keeping it a little bit warmer. Uh, so that, it's certainly an advantage to the way that they've designed it. Uh, there are a few other advantages to what they've designed in theirs. As I said, it's, a, it's slightly more accurate in terms of the point size of the uh, laser dot than what my printer can handle. And uh, surprisingly, it's also less expensive. I, I was surprised this uh, this printer, I think in a kit form, is somewhere around fourteen or $1,500 American, uh, which is uh, probably about half of what my printer is retailing for nowadays. Uh, so it's it's a a very capable printer for a very reasonable price. And uh, I'm, I am seriously thinking about getting one at some point uh, just because it is a, a really nice machine for, for what you're getting. Yeah. What's impressive to me here is that we're starting to see temperature controlled environments being introduced at a very consumer level in terms of manufacturing and, and producing. Yeah. This is something that typically you're not seeing in the lower end printers uh, you're starting to see this in sort of, you know, ten thousand dollar printers, uh, not fifteen hundred dollar printers. Uh, so the fact that they're building this in and and starting to pay attention to it is nice. Uh, they're actually giving some serious thought to the build quality of what's going on. Now, on top of that, uh, I've also been watching some of the experiments that that an acquaintance of mine over in the UK has been doing. Uh, Jack Rowe, he is also a pen maker and jeweler over in Birmingham. And he's been quite heavily invested in using 3D printers for his entire career. And he has been experimenting with a new resin, which is has quite high wax content, much higher than the um, than the resins that I'm using right now. So for most people, if they took a look at the resin that I'm using right now and, you know, you look at something, you look at the, uh, like trying to light it on fire, for instance, it doesn't really light on fire. It doesn't really melt. Whereas the resin that Jack has been experimenting with lately, you can actually light it on fire and it will burn as if it were a candle. Uh, so it has a high enough wax content in it that it will, in fact, uh, burn quite nicely, which helps with the burnout process and means that there is lower risk of your investment plaster having issues 
during the burnout cycle. Uh, now, of course, there is a downside to that resin and the resin needs to be warm when you're curing it during the print phase. So this is one where it is very, very picky about the, the working temperature that it's that it's in. And you really do need to be working at it, you know, above 30 degrees Celsius, which I'm never intentionally keeping my house above 30 degrees. Uh, it does get that warm during the summer sometimes, but I, I'm never going to keep my shop or my house intentionally that high. So uh, there, there's certainly some um, some advantages to using some of these other newer resins that are coming out, but they are picky about how they work. And something like this Moai printer might actually be a good alternative for working on it, or at the very least trying to set my current one up with a better heater so that it can actually work on these uh, these more advanced resins. One of the first consumer level laser-based resin printers that made a big splash when it first dropped onto the scene was the Form Labs. And they have recently announced the, the Form 3 and the Form 3L. Have you had a chance to look at either of these? Yeah, these the Form Labs guys have always been doing a good job on their printers, and uh, they are certainly not at the low end of the consumer range. They're They're certainly in the higher end. And they've always been gearing their printers towards people who are taking manufacturing with 3D printers seriously, whether you're doing something like what I'm doing where you're casting with it or whether you're actually turning the parts that are coming out of it into a, a, the final product. Uh, Formlabs have done a, a really great job. I think they started out as a Kickstarter with their original Formlabs printer. And I know a number of people who sort of skipped that phase but then ended up getting their Formlabs 2 or the Form 2 printer and have been very, very pleased with it. Uh, a number of professional jewelers I know use their form too. And then uh, recently, maybe a week or two ago, they announced this new generation of form print, their form labs printer. It is pretty impressive what they're, what they've managed to do with this printer. And one of the biggest things is that they have, they've created this technique called low force stereolithography. And it's a, a really interesting thing to see they've got some good photos of it on their or video of it on their their site and they're actually bending the bottom of the build tank and stretching it basically as they're hitting it with the laser uh, so that the there's a couple of things that are going on there the first is that it means that you are at the exact right level for the print every single at every single part of the print uh, which is important sometimes you get build tanks which are not quite level and so you can end up with weird problems happening because the um that the bottom of that build tank isn't quite you know isn't all quite at the same level uh, the other advantage that this is doing is that it's reducing the stress on the part uh, one of the issues that you run into with a large flat surface like my build tank is that the entire area of the print for at that level is being sort of adhered to that that layer that um, that plastic layer that's there, and it can generate a lot of suction when you're trying to lift the print and bring it up to the next level so that you can you can print the next layer. The material that shipped with my printer 
uh, wasn't the best quality uh, sort of material for the bottom of a build tank. And I remember early on, every time it would lift the model off of the bottom of the tank, you could actually hear it snapping as the suction broke uh, from that um, from the, the bottom of the build tank. Uh, I've since gone over to a Teflon material for the bottom of the build tank, so it doesn't have quite as much of a problem. But every once in a while, I still get build failures because it's tried to lift up the print and bring it to the next layer. And instead of it releasing from the bottom of the build tank, it actually releases from the build plate itself um, that's moving up and down. And so the entire print gets ruined. Uh, so this is an intriguing design. I, I'm curious to see how how well this actually works in real life because it, it it certainly has the potential to solve a very real problem that I've run into in my own builds. Another nice perk about it is that it improves your build speeds because uh, there's a technology that predates this by by several years. It's called Clip which was continuous liquid interface production, which used a, a flexible membrane as well, but it suffered issues due to suction. So if you had a very broad area of your print that was adhering to the membrane, it was not as successful. Uh, now, this thing was blazing fast on a lot of these demos that you see that are very lacy, or for instance, uh, say, printing the Eiffel Tower upside down, uh, it could do this very, very quickly compared to your standard resin printer. But if you tried to print anything without those voids or that had a very small surface area that was actually in contact with the membrane at any time, the suction could be so strong that it would actually tear it off of the the build plate itself that is being drawn up out of the resin. Uh, so the approach that Formlabs has taken here with their, their low-force stereolithography, looks like it solves a number of, if not all, of the issues that plagued the clip process. And given the track record of the folks over at Form Labs, uh, I'm pretty sure they nailed this. Uh, so I'm yeah. really impressed with what they've come up with here with the, the Form 3 and the Form 3L. I have to say this uh, Formlabs uh, Form 3L printer is unbelievable in terms of the size that it is. Uh, when when you had first sent it to me, I, I'd heard a couple of people sort of mention, oh, there's a new Formlabs printer, and I hadn't really looked at it yet. And then you sent me a link to this thing, and I thought, okay, yeah, great. This is another Formlabs printer. And then I scrolled down to the bottom, and there's a little video clip of a woman removing a housing for a I think it's a speaker housing from this printer. And you realize just how large the build volume on this printer is. And it is absolutely massive. I couldn't believe just how, how large this thing is. And in an effort to speed up the process, they've actually added two lasers to this thing so that it can try and cover the surface area that it has in a reasonable time frame. Uh, so this, this 3L printer is just incredibly large I, I i wish that i needed something like this it's uh it was actually a reasonable price i think it's about ten thousand dollars for uh for this printer and I, I wish that i could justify the demand that i would need to print on this thing because it looks like an impressive machine well trying to print a single run of pens that you'd get out of that i'm sure you'd 
burn through 10K in materials very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I did the math, sort of the rough math, and I think I could print 250 pens at a time in a single build on this printer. And then I started trying to do the math about the cost of casting that afterwards. And I, I just that hurt my brain a little too much. I'm, I, I, in fact, it would take me years just to do the finishing work on the 250 pens that I could print in a single print run on this thing. So yeah, uh, hats off to anybody who's using this for production work because it is uh, an impressive machine. My only reservation about the Formlabs printers is that they do use these printer cartridges basically for the resins. And there's some advantages to this. It means that you're never putting more resin into the printer than you really need for the print job itself. And it's being constantly supplied from a one liter tank or in the case of the 3L, two one liter tanks. And so it, it does give you the opportunity to uh, to print uh, very large print jobs and not worry about running out of resin that's in there. Uh, but I am a little concerned because you do run into the situation where if the resins that they have available are just not that good for you, then you're kind of stuck with what they're doing. I don't think there's an option to be able to fill your own tanks with your own resin. Um, so for instance, this resin that uh, that I mentioned that Jack is experimenting with, I don't think it would be very easy to use that resin in one of these Formlabs printers. And that's that's my own, my biggest reservation with these printers is that while there's a lot of advantages to those tanks, there's also some serious disadvantages if you need to move outside of their little ecosystem of, of resins. In a different vein of proprietary capsules, how are the batteries in your AirPods doing? Uh, my first-gen AirPods are not doing spectacular. Uh, they're not as bad as some people's are. Uh, unfortunately, the, the problems with tiny, well, with any lithium-ion batteries that recharging them after a certain number of times, they tend to lose their potency. And with the tiny little lithium ion batteries that happen to be in AirPods, when they start losing their potency, you really notice. Uh, so I think I'm down to around three hours of battery life right now in my AirPods, which isn't horrible because I think they start out with about five hours of battery life originally. Um, so it's, uh, it's usable. It means that, um, I'm actually using it as a gauge of when I should take a break in the shop. Uh, when the AirPods beep at me to say that they're starting to run low, I just uh, take a bit of a break and let them charge for a couple of minutes. But uh, yes, I am still suffering from the same problems that a lot of other people are where my AirPods are, my first gen AirPods are starting to die on me. I really wish they'd design them in such a way that the batteries could be easily replaced, but that is sadly not the case, which leaves us in somewhat of an untenable situation. So certainly not going to be able to carry on this way for several hundred more years. At some point, we're going to have to either invent better batteries, which there's some groundbreaking research out there that's being done in that vein, or the simpler route, make it easier to repair them. But it sounds like you're probably going to be in the market to be replacing yours in the not too distant future. Yeah, I'll be I'll be replacing them at some point. Uh, I, in terms of the repairability, these are a particular challenge because trying to make something small enough that's comfortable to sit in the ear is uh, and have a removable battery in it is is a bit of a challenge. And I don't know that don't know that anybody's going to be able to figure that one out. It sounds like the perfect 
design challenge for a trillion dollar company? Well, that's uh, maybe I think realistically the bigger, the better use of their time and energy is figuring out better battery technology. There are some appealing battery alternatives coming out in the next probably five to 10 years. Uh, but I think that's a better, sort of a better use of the uh, their R&D time than trying to figure out how to make uh, replaceable batteries for these things because trying to make a consumer-friendly sort of cell that you can replace is, uh, is a bit of a challenge in something that small. Now, one of the challenges that I've had with the AirPods over time, especially in the shop, is that uh, while they're great and they, they're wireless and it means that I, I don't have to worry about catching any kind of wires on machinery. Uh, one of the issues that I do run into is that they don't actually do a lot of passive noise canceling. And you sent me a link to the sort of coming soon page for the new Beats Pro headphones, which are designed primarily, it looks like, for people who are working out. Have you uh, have you looked into these very much yet? Nothing more than the coming soon page and the various promotional videos. To me, it seems like they solve your particular use case a little bit better. I mean, they're bulkier to carry around than the AirPods, but they do give you that passive noise cancellation that you're after. Yeah. And and the, the bulkiness is something that does concern me a little bit. I don't know that I would want to keep these on me as sort of my daily carry headphones. I'm curious to see how big the case is that they come in. They're obviously much larger physically than the AirPods are, and therefore the the charging case is going to be much larger as well. Uh, so depending on how big they are in the pocket, they might be useful as a sort of a daily carry thing, uh, but they would certainly be useful in the shop. Uh, they've got bigger batteries in them, which means they're going to last longer. I think they're calling for up to nine hours of listening time, and they are they're a little bit more secure in the ear which doesn't really concern me very much to be honest i've never had my airpods come loose on me or or fall out so that's not really an issue but this the passive noise canceling is certainly a big deal and in fact that's something that i was thinking about again while i'm getting ready for this trip to the uk uh, unfortunately the airpods uh, the the passive noise canceling is so low when you're on a you know busy street or you're on the tube, for instance, where it's quite noisy. I can't listen to a podcast or an audiobook while I'm on the tube uh, because it just doesn't block out enough of the ambient noise. Uh, so if I'm going to listen to music on, um, you know, on a on a subway ride, I tend to have to listen to music instead of a instead of a uh, an audiobook. And uh, it would be nice to have a little bit more passive noise canceling, like what these are going to give. Mm-hmm. Now, if I remember correctly, you've gone the opposite route of me where you've gone for a, a very inexpensive AirPod or AirBud, Bluetooth AirBud option. Uh, does this product look like it might be appealing to you with uh, a little bit more battery life and, and a little bit more passive noise cancelling? I don't see myself wearing these. Uh, we have a pair of the Beats X kicking around the house. They're nice. My wife uses them primarily. I have a pair of Sony Bluetooth headphones when I want nicer sound. For the most part, though, I'm listening to podcasts or audiobooks, so I'm still primarily using the S530, which can be had for anywhere from $1.99 to $10, shipping included, to your door. Now, I had mentioned in the past as well, I 
One thing I don't like about the S530s is that if you double click on the button, they will call the last person that you called. I hate that feature. <laughs> I really wish that was a, a skip forward feature or that there was some way to skip forward. What is this call calling that you're talking about? What what is this this strange thing that you mentioned? What is this terrible app <laughs> where someone is assigned a 10-digit number and anyone in the world can just type that into their app and and interrupt them in the middle of absolutely anything they're doing and take over the whole device? This sounds like a horrible horrible technology. No, not a not a huge phone person. Um Anyway, apart from that, I'm pretty happy with the S530s. They, they do their job. Uh, again, though, just for spoken word type stuff, it's not something I would mm. listen to music on, which the AirPods would be far superior for. Uh, but in terms of them staying in the ear, uh, I can vouch for the fact that they stay in very well. I picked up a delightful case of road rash while out for a run. and tripped, I tripped over... Um, you know, like those student painter signs are really cheap and flimsy. Basically yeah. a wire sticking up out of the ground in sure. a square a rectangle shape with a piece of plastic draped over it. There was one of those wonderfully placed on the median and the sign was no longer on it. So I did not notice the wire, which hooked 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 my toe and sent me flying out into thankfully stopped traffic. Uh, they were stopped at a light. Uh, but I picked up some some nasty road rash from that, and uh, I thought that was the worst of it. But it turns out the road rash all healed very nicely, but my toe has had some, some residual issues. Uh, so I'm pretty sure I either dislocated it and it didn't relocate quite correctly, or maybe I had a mild fracture somewhere. But that, that has not been fun. The S530 stayed in my ear the entire time. No, no trouble whatsoever. Uh, another wireless ear, but I did try and I believe I mentioned here on the show probably a year, year and a half ago, uh, was the X1T and it's okay. Um, one of the things I really like about the S530 is I can slip them under my toque and I know you do the same thing with your, your AirPods as well. Uh, but the, the X1Ts are, are a little too bulky to do that. I kind of look like a, a bit of a Frankenstein when I've got those in. But they do do skipping forward when you, you double tap on them, but I don't wear them nearly as often as I do the S530s. Hmm. One of the nice things about the AirPods is you can actually program what the double tap feature is on each AirPod. So my right AirPod, if I double tap, it either st starts or stops whatever it is that's playing or it can answer a call. And then the left one is uh, skip forward. And so, for instance, if I'm listening to uh, something in Overcast, I'm listening to a podcast in Overcast, then if I double tap on my left ear AirPod, it will skip forward 30 seconds. If I'm listening to music and I double tap on it, then it'll skip to the next track. Uh, so that's a really nice feature of the AirPods. I, I do like that ability to um, to customize them. And the other nice thing is that it's accelerometer-based on the AirPods, uh, which means that you're not looking for a tiny little button and you're not looking for a capacitive touch surface. It, it's all based on that actual tap gesture, which is really nice. So what color will you be getting? Well, that's one of the nice things about this is that they come in something other than white. 
I, the one thing that I that drives me nuts about Apple products is that they often have very limited color choices, and uh, white seems to be their color of choice a lot of times. Uh, so I think with these ones, I am probably going to go for either the black or the the dark blue that they've got. Uh, they have a uh, they have a navy blue option, uh, both of which will cover up the sort of grunge marks that I tend to leave on my headphones when I'm working in the shop because uh, my hands do get a little bit oily. So, yes, I am very happy that there are choices other than just white for these uh, these headphones. Provided the batteries last you long enough, I uh, guess you're going to be stuck wearing your Mug Me White headphones on the tube in the UK. <laughs> That's right. These These aren't available just yet, so I'll have to wait. Safe travels. I hope you have an incredible time over there in the UK. Sounds like you have a lot lined up and a lot of great people to visit once again. If you happen to be in the UK and you're in the Birmingham area, the weekend of May 11th, so that's the uh, Saturday is the 11th and the Sunday is the 12th, uh, you might want to stop into Makers Central. There's a large gathering of various makers that are showing up there. Uh, There's going to be different booths, different people speaking, uh, a lot of interesting things going on. Uh, I was there last year with Rich Lone, and we had a great time. We're back this year. Rich is bringing his new and improved uh, hockey puck carving mill with him, and uh, we're going to be carving hockey pucks for people while we're there. And uh, if you happen to be at Maker Central, please make sure and stop by and say hi. Uh, I'd love to see you. Hopefully we'll we'll get a chance to meet some people while we're there that uh, that listen to the show. Our thanks to the Santa Fe Symposium for sponsoring this episode of Off Hours. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop. And Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand.